to the second episode of our conversation series. I'm your host, Torniki Metravelli. In this episode, you will listen to the conversation with eminent sociologist of religion, Professor Jose Casanova. The task of our meeting was to understand the emergence of various types of neo-nationalisms within a transnational European Union in our global age and the various facilitating and hindering roles which various religions are playing in this emergence. I hope you will enjoy this episode. So I must start from briefly introducing uh, myself and, uh, and our platform before I'll be having the pleasure of introducing uh, Professor Casanova. So briefly about myself, I'm postdoc here in Lund, I'm saying here I'm technically still based in, in Switzerland, which I'll be hopefully uh, living in a month. Uh, so I'll be I'll be uh, in, in Lund very soon. I'm postdoc in, in the Department of, of Theology, and we have a platform on Christianity, nationalism, and populism. We run different uh, seminar series. You're more than welcome to join them. One of them is our departmental seminar, um, and another is, at this moment, uh, the conversation series. So please, uh, if you want to be um, on our list, drop me a line or through the chat or through the email. And yeah, you're more than welcome to receive uh, those updates. Um, I'm keeping still at, at meeting people. I'm glad to see the audience is, is, is growing. But uh, now my next step will be to introduce uh, the man who we all know very well. Jose Casanova is one of the world's top scholars in sociology of of religion, a senior fellow at Berkeley Center, where his work focuses on globalization, religions, and secularization. He's also professor emeritus at Georgetown University, where he previously taught in the Department of Sociology and Department of Theology and Religious Studies. During 2017, he was the Cook Chair in Countries and Cultures of the North um, at the U.S. Library of Congress. John Kluge Center, where he worked on a book manuscript on early modern globalization through a Jesuit prism. He has published works on a broad range of subjects, including religion and globalization, migration and religious pluralism, transnational religions, and sociological theory. His best-known work, Public Religions in the Modern World, University of Chicago Press, 1994, has become a modern classic in the field and has been translated into several languages, including Japanese, Arabic, and Turkish. In 2012, Professor Casanova was awarded um, uh, the Theology Prize from Salzburger Hochschulwochen in recognition of his lifelong achievement in the field of theology. Professor Casanova's most recent research has focused primarily on two areas, and these areas are globalization and religion, and the dynamics of transnational religion, migration, and increasing ethno-religious and cultural diversity. His books in the areas include Islam, Gender, and Democracy in Contemporary 
comparative perspective, which is co-edited with Jocelyn Serrari, Oxford University Press, 2017, Beyond Secularization, Religious and Secular Dynamics in Our Global Age. Um, again, very prominent Ukrainian publisher, Spirit and Letter, Spirit and Letter, 2017, in Ukrainian. And Jesuits and Globalization, Historical Legacies and Contemporary Challenges, Georgetown University Press, co-authored by Berkeley Center's Thomas Bandhoff. <coughs> has also published several articles on the subjects, including global religious and secular dynamics, the modern systems of classification, which is again in, in, in real research perspectives in religion and politics, nativism and the politics of gender in Catholicism and Islam, in gendering religion and politics, untangling modernities, Palgrave, 2009, and public religions revisited in religion beyond the concept for the university press. Um, now, uh, the floor is yours, Professor Casanova. We're delighted to host you here in, in, across you know, the ocean in, in this space. We're having the, the different uh, people joining here, so I'll be doing this job. Now the floor is yours. Thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you, Tornike, for the kind introduction and for the lengthy mentioning of all these publications. Actually, I know that, the, that in Scandinavia you are very strict with copyrights. I'm less uh, serious about it. All my publications are available at the Berkeley Center website. You can download all my publications from there without having to, to follow copyright laws. Um, I don't know whether anybody will, will accuse me of doing something not right, but anyhow, this is my belief. Um, it's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to present some thoughts on uh, actually the topics of your platform, Christianity, nationalism and populism. Uh, originally, I thought that uh, one of my papers, my recent papers, uh, that was published uh, uh, out of a conference in Humboldt University on the new populisms and religion, um, it was trying to understand the role of the European Union and for first in transformations of transnational religion and then in the rise of neopopulisms today. Unfortunately, the paper was not able to be distributed, so I'll go around some of the issues of the paper. So I'm going to make three main points. One is the relation between uh, religion and nationalism. Uh, this is a constant, has been a constant in modern European history, is part of the legacy of the Westphalian system, the Westphalian system that was based on the principle cuius regio eius religio, the length of the process of confessionalization of peoples and nations under the uh, uh, sovereign. Cuius regius religio means the sovereign determines the religion of the subjects. And so you have a process of confessionalization. All of Northern Europe becomes homogeneous Protestant. All of Southern Europe became homogeneous Catholic. In between, you have three societies, Holland, Germany, and Switzerland. They couldn't get rid of their uh, uh, religious minorities, and you have a kind of bi-confessionalism, which is organized also territorially through lender, in the case of Germany, through cantons, confessional cantons in the case of Switzerland, or the so-called Zwillen, or pillars, in the case of Holland. Now, this means that uh, uh, first it was the sovereign that decided the religion of the subjects, but then it is the nation itself with the transfer of sovereignty from 
the monarch, from the royal absolutist monarch to the people, we the people, or to the nation, now you have a fusion of uh, basically Christian nation and uh, uh, so the churches and the Christian nation. The, perhaps the high point of this fusion is, of course, World War One, in which basically all the uh, 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 countries fighting World War One fought it in the name of their Christian nation against other Christian nations. The war was received by all religious leaders in every country in Europe with a welcoming chauvinist attitude, with the exception perhaps of the Pope that said that you are crazy killing each other uh, in the name of the nation. But even the papal orders like the Jesuits who had been expelled from France and Germany precisely either in the in the Republican anti-Catholic legislation or in the Kulturkampf in Germany, the Jesuits came back in World War I to France and Germany to fight and die for their countries. This is the high point of this fusion. But with the globalization of the Westphalian system, the process repeats itself in other traditions. Obviously, orthodoxy perhaps more than any other other tradition, because there was already a tradition of autocephaly. You have the old Georgian autocephalous church and the old Armenian autocephalous church. Once the uh, uh, um, ecumenical patriarch becomes basically subject to the Ottoman powers, then you have basically the emergence of the patriarchy autocephaly, autocephalous patriarch in Moscow, the Moscow Patriarchate, as an alternative to the ecumenical patriarch. In the 19th century, every new independent country, as they, as they become independent of the Ottoman Empire, each of them develops autocephalous patriarchal national churches. The project is still going on today in Ukraine, the fight between Russia and, and Ukraine over, a, over an autocephalous uh, national church. But this process, uh, it, go, it goes even beyond the West. Uh, look in Latin America in the 19th century after independence, basically despite it, all the countries are Catholic, uh, you have basically national Catholicism in every Latin American country. Basically, you have a form of fusion of the church and the nation, actually uh, independent of Rome. Uh, the kind of Romanization of Latin American Catholicism would only be really, really developed in the 20th century and most uh, strongly, uh, really, really after Vatican II. Um, and then, of course, you have the same thing with the, with the uh, Muslim countries. You have the emergence of, of Muslim states that basically take over Islam. And so you have the ethatization, the kind of confessionalization of Islam through the state also becomes a phenomenon. Obviously, Turkey, even secular Turkey, Ataturk, you have basically the, the, the Ministry of Religious Affairs basically runs uh, Turkish Islam. And in every, every uh, Sunni country, it happened. And, and, and later, under Shiite, uh, after the, the, the Iranian revolution, you have the same phenomenon within Shiism. Even other, other parts of Asia that had uh, a much, much more pluralistic religious structures, the uh, post-colonial uh, kind of process of nation-state formation. Also, basically, you have states taking over either religion, making it a national religion, or irreligion against traditions. 
In China, you have the state taking over the field, regulating the field of religion, against religion. In uh, uh, the case of, of, of colonial India, you have the mobilization of all the traditional religions for independence. And then after independence, you know, again, you have the process of ethno-religious cleansing, which was the process through which the uh, confessionalization took place in Western Europe, repeats itself after the fall of empires. And, and, and you know, it has happened in the Middle East constantly, even in, uh, with Zionism, repeats itself. So the fusion in this aspect of religion and nation is part of modern globalization of the Westphalian system. Uh, but for me, it's interesting then to look at the European Union, uh, precisely at the very moment when the whole world has become already territorialized through a nation state. And there is no single territory in the world, which is, I'm sorry, which is not organized through nation states. At the very same moment, you have the old European nation states trying to uh, transcend is nationalism in forming this supranational European community. A process which at first was only a Christian democratic process, basically led by Catholics. It was already during World War II, in the midst of the war, that French Catholics basically tried to contact German Catholics to say, look, we've been at war for 60 years. Let's try to get over this madness. Let's try to basically get rid of these nationalist wars. And if you look at the Schumann, Robert Schumann uh, uh, speech to the, to, to in Strasbourg in 1949, announcing the formation of the supranational community, community he talks of this European spirit, the need to overcome the, the, this terrible history of national uh, uh, of national and nationalist classes in Europe. Uh, but, the, but the Treaty of Rome at first was only basically a Catholic project. Even in France, it was only the Christian Democrats that really were the pro-European Union. Neither the Gaulist nationalists nor the socialists were not for the Union. No Protestant country at first was basically for the European Union. So originally it was really a, a Catholic project and part of this transnational, uh, 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 if you wish, Catholic identity. But also because the new Christian democratic parties in the biconfessional societies of Germany and Holland, especially now that West Germany was half Catholic, half Protestant, so it was not anymore a minority as it had been, and also Catholics by after World War II were also half of the population of Holland. The new Christian Democratic parties, the whole conflict between Catholics and Protestants had already been, uh, if you wish, overcome. Uh, before you had confessional parties, you have Protestant parties against Catholic parties, whenever you have biconfessionalism. The, all, the two cleavages, uh, the old uh, cleavage between Catholic and Protestant countries, and the cleavage between religious and secular parties. By post-World War II, both cleavages with the secularization of European societies were over. And so you have the possibility of this formation. Eventually, what had been a Christian democratic project, uh, blessed by, by the Vatican, and with the support of Washington, the Rome axis, uh, uh, the, the Rome-Washington axis against uh, the Soviet Union, part of the Cold War. Eventually, 
you have the socialist parties becoming more and more uh, uh, central and becoming the hegemonic power within the European Union for, let's say, especially in the 80s, uh, uh, in the 80s. And so you have now a transference from what was originally, if you could see, a Christian democratic idea of Europe into a larger transnational, more based on welfare states, uh, uh, um, in all kinds of expansion, especially of uh, uh, economic uh, um, uh, reform. Um, these uh, uh, basically functions, I would argue, until roughly the year 2004, 2005. Uh, let me let me see to get the dates uh, uh, right. Um, 2004 is the year of the expansion of the European Union uh, to the east, incorporates 10 new countries, eight post-Soviet and Malta, and Malta and Cyprus, but also the year of the attempt to, the, to, to basically draft a European constitution. And then you have all the fights over the preamble European constitution. Should there be God? Uh, mentioned the constitution or not, the conflict between religious and lazy countries or understandings of the nation. Uh, the fact is that this is the beginning of the crisis, I think, from which the European Union has not yet recovered. There has no uh, alternative idea of Europe has emerged once the secularization of the Christian democratic and the socialist vision have, have basically uh, 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 transformed this idea. And you have then the financial, I mean, in 2005, the Dutch and French referendums defeated the, the text of the Constitution, and this was the end of even trying to develop a European Constitution. Uh, then comes the financial crisis. What was interesting about the financial crisis, that you already had populist countries, excuse me, populist parties throughout Europe that were directed against immigrants anti-immigrant nativist parties. Interestingly, in 2008-2010, Islam almost disappeared as a public issue from European politics, and now is the conflict between the northern Protestant countries, which are, if you wish, the old Bavarian Protestant ethic thesis. These are the hardworking countries, the thrifty against the spender from the and not serious countries from the south, the pigs, Portugal, first Ireland, then, then Italy, Greece and Spain, comes the uh, radical pro processes or programs of um, financial uh, 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 um, uh, reforms, rather austerity, austerity programs, particularly against Greece, but also it affects all of southern countries. And now you have the beginning of leftist populist parties in these southern countries against Europe, but mainly against Germany still. But interestingly enough, then, so you have the populist parties that were first anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, for a while become now these populist European parties against the Southern European uh, 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 countries, which are not serious partners. And then comes the immigration crisis, 2015-2016, and the same parties now become populist anti-Brussels parties. And so you have the beginning of a new neo-populism, which is the, the, it's a form of neo-nationalism against Brussels, that now Brussels becomes the a, a, a kind of idea, the symbol 
of cosmopolitan neoliberal globalization. At first, it had actually, this, is, this was not the case. You have very little, very little, uh, um, if you wish, uh, emergence of populist movements against neoliberalism when you have really the high point of neoliberal economic policies around the world. So actually, the anti-neoliberal parties emerge when neoliberalism itself is no longer uh, really, really dominant or hegemonic, and you have the emergence even in the United States of, of new type of, of neo-populist, anti-liberal, anti-globalization parties, Brexit. So the two, the very two centers of neoliberalism, basically uh, Great Britain, Thatcherian, uh, uh, UK, and the US now are, of course, the two, the two powers that basically are proposing anti-globalization, neo-populist, anti-liberal kind of, of, of parties with Brexit, of course. So this is, this is the kind of interesting transformation. And then what you find is, so you have a thing of a party like the the, the, the Dutch Liberal Party that started as a liberal party, basically founded by, uh, let's say, himself a gay, uh, 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 trying to protect uh, gay rights, liberal rights against conservative Muslims. But now basically it turns into an anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim party in the face almost with Gerd Wilders in defense almost of a kind of a Christian civilization. So you have the emergence of non-Christian, uh, uh, but identitarian uh, European Christian parties. So in the name of Christ, European Christianity against Islam. So you have some disinteresting transformations. Uh, we can go country by country. You know your own cases from the Scandinavia. I can tell you the variants in Spain. The interesting new thing with globalization is that uh, even these neonational, populist, anti-Brussel parties I themselves organize transnationally, and you have especially uh, under the sponsorship of, on the one hand, uh, the Moscow Patriarchate and Putin Russia that tries to uh, undermine the European Union and basically attacks the European Union as the center of liberalism, secularism, and gender ideology against conservative family uh, 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 traditions and rights in alliance now with evangelical Christians. So you have an alliance of the Russian Orthodox Church and the uh, American evangelicals in these world councils of the families, uh, basically forming a moralist international for conservative values against liberalism, secularism, feminism, and gender ideologies, if you wish exporting what had been called US culture wars into the rest of the world. So now uh, even these nationalist battles are really, really fought transnationally through these transnational alliances. Uh, and, and basically the idea is that it's not anymore this, you can find uh, processes uh, having versions of the same process in, in Erdogan, Erdogan's Turkey, in, in Modi, uh, India, in the Philippines, in Bolsonaro's Brazil. Uh, so basically you have these transnational dynamics which are reproduced themselves with different kind of, 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 of patterns but related throughout the world in very different cultures and civilizations. 
So this is where we are. If you wish, uh, that's why we call it neo-nationalism, neo-populism. Now, populism itself, of course, if you wish, is a constant uh, um, accompaniment to democracy. Uh, you could say that, that populism is a symptom of democracies trying to reform themselves and become more popular, more we the people, but trying to do shortcuts to liberal democracy. So in the name of direct democracy, the rule of the people, they basically try to undermine what will be the division of powers, and they are basically less, less uh, uh, um, uh, protective of what could be called um, uh, representative democracy of congressional structures, of parliaments, and especially of the judiciary. So you have, once again, what had been in the 19th century that had been separated. Uh, in the 19th century, liberals were anti-democrats, Democrats were anti-liberals, and you could have a country like Prussia that was neither liberal nor democrat, but was for the rule of law, a Rechtsstaat. So this notion of a kind of legal uh, constitutionality, liberalism and democracy that were separate in the 19th century, then we became fused together in what we call liberal democracy. But actually, liberal democracy is being divided, separated themselves in these tendencies. Democracy against liberalism, liberalism also against them, democracy against populism, and to a certain extent, uh, the weakness then of the constitutional structures, the, 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 the attempt to cut corners through referendums, through direct uh, rule of the people. And we find this is very clear, let's say, in, in, in the population from above that you have in countries in which basically the ruling parties are populist, in the case of, of uh, Hungary, Poland, where basically, again, this is here where the old Catholic identities can reemerge now as populist neo-national identities now against Brussels. Before they were directed against the Soviet Union, right, the, the, the Catholic uh, kind of identity now basically is very much against cosmopolitan liberal Brussels. So again, there is no single role, no single rule. Uh, there are all kinds of patterns of fusion, diffusion, con contradiction. To a certain extent, you have three different patterns of the relation between religion and nationalism. You have the fusion, where the ecclesiastical religion and the civil religion are one and the same, and church and state are almost one and the same. And this is the case of Scandinavia. Scandinavia, you have, uh, because theologically, you have uh, Lutheran churches are Landeskirchen, namely uh, 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 national territorial churches, the Church of Sweden, the Church of Denmark, the Church of Finland, and, and so the same thing goes for the Church of Ang uh, England, Ireland, uh, Scotland. You have then the possibility when you have a transnational religion, a kind of a republican, anti-religious state trying to develop a civil religion against the church, would be the case of laicite in France, where you have the separation of a civil religion, which is anti-Catholic uh, and anti-monarchic, fighting against a monarchist uh, Catholic uh, parties. 
Or, and so you have the conflict between a, a, an ecclesiastical and a laicist civil religion. And again, this process you, you find throughout wherever you have communist regimes, you, have, you may have an extreme uh, uh, form of this attempt to develop uh, even atheist civil religions against religion. Or you have uh, processes, especially where you have uh, religious pluralism of truly secular states that try not to establish any particular uh, uh, religion. So you cannot have the fusion of a hegemonic religion with the nation, but the nation is identified with a civil, non-denominational civil religion, uh, which is not in conflict with any particular religion. All the religious denominations basically support the civil religion. This is, of course, the American model, the American model that you find also in Muslim countries like uh, Indonesia, where you have also the Pancasila, is a secular principle that incorporates five different monotheistic religions, let's say, in Indonesia. Uh, the point is that these three types reproduce themselves Sometimes within the same country, you may go from one model to another, right? In India, you have the, the under Nehru, you have more the secular model protecting religious pluralism with the rise of Hindu nationalism. You have an attempt again of fusion of, of Hindu religion and, and nation, or you may have a confrontation, let's say, more in, in um, uh, more laicist projects of forming the nation, building the nation against religion, is, is most clearly in the case of China, where the attempt is to get rid of every form of, of traditional Chinese religion as being feudal, superstition, precisely to modernize the country, and, and so on. But those are now, today, are those are global patterns. With this, I, I am going to, to end my presentation, and we can open the floor for conversation first with uh, Professor Peani's elites. So the new neo-nationalisms against Europe are really, really emerged after the, the immigration and refugee crisis in 2015. Either new parties, as is in the case of the Alternative in Germany, or the transformation of all parties in Gerd Wilders' parties being transformed. Some of the, I mean, Denis, uh, to a certain extent, uh, party has some of these characteristics. Uh, obviously, Le Pen's party also goes from, again, in defense of a kind of a, 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 a goal, goalist kind of nationalism against Brussels. Also, uh, it was part always of French nationalism against 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 uh, the transatlantic alliance. So now you 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 have you have this this emergence again, and yet uh, pro-Putin and pro-Trump. So you have a very, very, very uh, kind of a strange combinations. Bannon, of course, Bannon, the great ideologies uh, that helped Trump come to power, is the one that comes to Europe trying to establish now right-wing Catholic populist Catholic parties. He comes very close to to do it in in Italy with Salvini. For a while, it looked like Salvini is going to emerge really as a kind of an, a, a a Catholic populist party in Rome against Brussels and even against Rome, against the Vatican, right? So uh, when he basically presents himself as a true Catholic against this immigrant pope that is not true, true Catholic, uh, obviously he, he, he fails. And in Spain today, we have a, a party box, which is very much a, a, a right-wing Catholic, anti-immigrant, 
anti-feminist, but also anti-Catalan party. I mean, Spanish nationalism always takes really, really the direction against the Basque and the Catalan. So, so the dynamics are again of nationalism are different. But look in Italy, Salvini that emerges out of La Liga. La Liga that had been a secessionist party, basically against the South to basically secede from 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 Italy. Uh, join Europe without Italy, now becomes an anti-European uh, 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 party. Uh, La Liga originally had been actually a semi-pagan, uh, uh, had pagan symbols of the old uh, Padonia, uh, and now has re-emerged as a more as a Catholic populist party. So again, those are interesting. You're mentioning this transmutations. It's interesting, again, to see you know, Putin uh, offering this kind of conservative resistance to the liberal state, a sort of the, you know, macho conservative old school man who can defend friends and punish enemies and stand for defense of family values. I'm, I'm wondering, is what does it tell us about the nature of this uh, nativism? Is, is outright nativism more grassroots and right-wing populism more elitist in nature? Or what's the, what's the nature of interaction between these two forms of nationalism, if you will? You, you mentioned Putin, obviously there it comes with a, a Russian imperialism, rather. So you have in the first uh, release, 2008, which marks the turning point for the Ruski Mir project. Originally, uh, Putin in his first presidency had followed more an Eurasian project, trying to develop an alternative to Europe. So basically to develop a, a new against Europe, but out of you outside of Europe. Now realizes that this cannot work and now tries to undermine the old Westphalian seat, undermine the European Union by going back to a European Russia, a Christian Russia, against secular Europe. So to get involved now in European politics, but undermining precisely the European Union, secularism, liberalism, human rights, uh, feminism, in the name of uh, Christian traditional values. So again, the context obviously will tell you whether it is more in which direction it goes. So nativism can be imperialist nativism against Ukrainians, right? These people that don't want to recognize that they are truly Russian and that the, the, they are not such a thing as, as, as Ukrainians. Or, and so the Ruski Mir is, of course, the argument that these are part of uh, the world of Russia uh, because this is the all Orthodox, Orthodox Rus that basically includes Belarus, uh, White Russia, Malorus, let's say, Little Russia or Ukraine. And so, uh, but, but obviously you cannot have this. Uh, Brexit, of course, was an attempt to go back to the old nostalgia of an imperial Britain that can live without the European Union and can be better with a Commonwealth and with a global. So the kind of the attempt that uh, uh, Britain can do it alone much better than being part of the European Union. So again, the context will, will, will dictate in which direction it goes and it can go in many different directions. Okay, thank you. Um, um, another question will be about relationship between neoliberalism and neo-nationalism. Um, again, if Christian Jocke would have been here, he would, says, well, he would have said probably, well, many of the new policies have their roots in neoliberalism rather than the new nationalism. I wonder what's your take on this relationship between neoliberalism and neo-nationalism? Again, I, this is something which I have not really studied because those things are themselves 
so unclear the concepts and mean so many different things. As I point out, neoliberalism, when it was really, really uh, hegemonic in global economic and in global politics uh, through the US and, and Great Britain precisely, and the World Bank and the uh, Monetary Fund, and in this respect, the European Union was following it, there were no populist uh, um, anti-liberal movements. Uh, the really, really, the first movements emerged first against the austerity program in the southern European countries, the first populist movements, whether in Greece or Podemos in Spain. Um, and, but only later, uh, the resentment goes against the national elites who have sold themselves to Brussels instead of taking care of their own people. So you have an, a, an argument for a a nativist democracy against these cosmopolitan uh, uh, elites, which basically uh, don't care about their own people. So in the name of the people, in the name of democracy, they now reject the European Union and to go back to the authentic democracy. And we, you have the same element, let's say, in the Trumpian, in the Trump uh, making America great again, in which here you have a nostalgia for an all white supremacy and basically the attempt to recreate a time in which all these problems did not exist and in which um, uh, you have basically working class that could live uh, on good wages. And so it's a, it's a trans it has economic, obviously, causes of uh, growing inequality, uh, the growing, the discarding of, 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 of forms of industrial labor which are no longer needed, and, and so on. So there are many different aspects, and the resentment also, you have elements of, obviously, of anti-feminism, uh, male chauvinism, which is tied. I mean, in, in the case of the US, this is very clear, that the fusion of white supremacy, male chauvinism, and if you wish, uh, traditional uh, working class uh, um, ethnicities. Okay, um, thanks very much. I think we have uh, you know, a, a large audience. And so just to remind you, there is this reaction function here, and then you can raise your hand in, in case you have a question to Professor Casanova. Please raise your hand and then you'll be asked. So Kaspar Punter is first. Please, Kaspar, floor is yours, then it's Richard. Identify yourself, please, before, and then, then just ask the question. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Ms. Professor Casanova. Um, I have, a, I have a, a short question. I was very fascinated with uh, how you described this antagonism between liberalism and democracy in the 19th century, which then became somehow fused in the, in the 20th century. I grew up in a country in Switzerland, which has a partly direct democratic constitution. So you can always challenge legislation by parliament by appealing to the people at large. But at the same time, populism is a rather negative word as well in Switzerland. Yet in some sense, you could say maybe that Switzerland has a populist constitution because it allows these appeals to the people to have a legal effect. But at the same time, parliament also can react with clear competences. So my question would be, how could the Swiss experience maybe inform these debates around populism can you actually have something like a liberal populism which goes together uh, as, as a concept, or is that a contradiction? What are your thoughts on that? And also, could direct democratic reforms be a way to take the wind out of the sails 
of the groups with uh, pernicious rhetoric. Right. Thank you. This, this is a very interesting question. I have not reflected enough on the Swiss experience. It's a fascinating precisely because uh, it's a, it's one of the oldest democracy, but it's a form of direct democracy. And because of the federal structure, the direct democracy is really at the canton level, not at the at the level of the federal structure. The federal structure is a very different. And so there is an element of of federalism, which makes possible direct democracy, because you don't have really uh, democracy, direct democracy at the national uh, federal level. Uh, which is similar to the situation of federalism in the United States rights. The direct democracy, the populism, always really, really emerged first through the states rather than at the, at the federal level in the United States. Um, but let's not forget that um, uh, Switzerland was one of the latest countries in giving female suffrage. Uh, basically to women. So again, it was very much a male uh, conservative kind of a structure that was very much defending patriarchal structures. And of course, it has its own isolation uh, kind of uh, um, advantage structures because it's a, it benefits tremendously from global neoliberalism being one of the financial centers of global neoliberalism, but at the same time, precisely maintain its own a kind of uh, separate structure from the European Union or even from other transnational dynamics. Um, again, I think there is no uh, formula which is valid for every country. I think that we have to be pragmatic. What we try in every context is try to improve as best as we can functioning democracies. But obviously, it didn't make sense to try to bring uh, uh, um, French etatism to basically to Switzerland, but also the attempt to bring American politics to France wouldn't work either. So what you can do best is trying to improve what you have in, in, in the best possible direction. But certainly, I mean, uh, some of the uh, populist movements in Switzerland also were directed against Muslims against the the uh, mosque, against any kind of, of Muslim symbol. So it was a very much uh, also a kind of an anti-Muslim uh, populist movement at, at first. So again, what is the threat? What is considered to be the threat in, the, in any moment? Uh, it, it will change. I'm not sure it really, really this is a, a, a good answer to your question because I don't know, I don't know enough of the Swiss experience to, to uh, basically uh, um, see whether what you're proposing is really, really what is needed. But the fact that liberalism and democracy can go in separate ways. Today, there is this fundamental crisis of liberalism, really, uh, and very much attacked by principle of direct democracy. I mean, we find it even in majoritarian parties, let's say, in, 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 in urban, in Hungary, or the, the Catholic parties in, in, in Poland. Those are majoritarian parties that basically argue for the tyranny of the majority against the rights of minorities, against the protection of liberal human rights, against any kind of gender rights. So basically, again, is the, the notion of what Tocqueville would have called the tyranny of the majority against uh, liberties of minorities and individuals. 
Thanks. Thanks very much, Kaspar, uh, for your question. Uh, now we have Richard Bobrovich. Yes, my name is Richard Bobrovich, and I'm also uh, at the Center of Theology and Religious Studies in Lund. And uh, I have a question to, to what you just mentioned, so about Poland. Uh, as, as you studied Poland as well, I'm, I'm interested what would be your hypothesis of why Poland went a completely different way in its secularization and in the development of, uh, uh, of nationalism than, let's say, Ireland, despite, well, in, in, at least in some cases, quite similar backgrounds. Well, they are similar in the sense that you have a, a Catholic majority countries uh, that were ruled by foreign states, obviously by Protestant Britain in the case of Ireland, and then uh, the partition of Poland uh, by Prussia, uh, Russia, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But of course, Poland had been part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that had been precisely the core of the of the uh, basically multi-religious system. Uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth became the refuge for every a religious minority that had to escape ethno-religious cleansing. This was a time when all the Jews from Europe ended up in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but also all the Protestant radical sects, Unitarians, Moravian Brethren, that had to leave their countries. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, because you have, precisely because you have at the highest point, who used regio, used religio, couldn't work because regio was uh, uh, three confessional. You have uh, the Protestant Lutheran uh, uh, aristocracy, you have the Catholic and Lithuanian, uh, uh, the Polish and, Ca and Lithuanian Catholic Slachta, and then you have the, the Ukrainian Orthodox Cossacks. And so, because at the top you have the three religions, you could not impose one upon everybody, and therefore the minorities were also protected, including Muslim Tatars and Jews, so not only Christians. Uh, after independence, Poland, I mean, before independence, before World War I, Poland was still a basically a very uh, pluralistic country. Only 51% of the population were Catholic. You have very large majorities, around 12% Jews, around 12% Protestants, around 12% Greek Catholics, and around 12% Orthodox. And now these minorities all disappear after World War II, either because they've been basically uh, the Holocaust or the changing of the borders. The Protestants are moved to, 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 to Germany, the Greek Catholics to Ukraine, or basically they have to abandon their territories and distribute it in the rest of Poland, and the Orthodox to Belarus as the, as the borders move. And now for the first time, you have really a Catholic nation but then a Catholic nation that mobilizes itself against foreign enemies. So you could argue that in Poland, people identified religion with freedom rather than with unfreedom. In the rest of Europe, we identify religion with the forced confessionalization from above. We want to be free. People want to be free from the churches and free from the state and identify modernity with individualism, the choice to leave religion behind. The Poles identified at first, at least until solidarity, with precisely Catholicism that is a religion fighting for the freedom of everybody, of the Poles. 
Um, to a certain extent, there has been some secularization in Poland, but not the radical one that you find in Ireland, indeed, with the economic transformation, joining the European Union, or the one in Spain after Franco, where basically in one single generation also, uh, Spain becomes one of the most secularized societies in Europe. So Poland, I argue, still remains a relatively a religious country, the identity, but a lot of anti-clericalism is developing, especially gender-based. You have a lot of liberals now which are anti-Catholics. You have a lot of feminists which are anti-Catholics. And a lot of young people are beginning to grow uh, uh, anti-Catholic. So it's the same thing that uh, the nuns in, in the United States. It's not that finally people are not religious because they are more modern in America, but simply because it's a consequence of religious politics. If the churches side with uh, uh, questions, with moral issues, which people recognize actually is immoral. And the issues of gender here are critical. Uh, gender, the transformation in gender morality is perhaps the key in many of the issues of secularization and anti-secularization. Thanks very, uh, thanks very much. Now, uh, Mika. Yeah. Thank you for the very interesting uh, presentation. I would like to go more into the connection between... Um, I do not see uh, Mika. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I would like to go more into the connection in Europe between uh, the uh, right-wing uh, populist nationalist parties and uh, Christianity, and especially like the emerging uh, connection, at least in some countries uh, where uh, some conservative Christians are finding alliances with these parties. Right. To me, this is uh, somehow enigmatic because right. the way I see it, the populist parties actually would like to have uh, Christianity as something that is not Islam, that means a domesticated religion, that is like, uh, it's, it's our tradition, uh, but it doesn't mess up with our freedom. Whereas then many conservative Christians would precisely want to limit the freedom of uh, individuals. So uh, to, to me, it's, uh, this is like, can this kind of like alliance last? Is it enough just to hate Muslims in the long run? Well, it's enough to have an anti-immigrant nativist parties, but it's not enough to create an anti-European, anti-Brussels uh, kind of nationalist Christian party. This much more difficult. That's why the populist countries in this attempt to create so the diffusion or the links between religion and the nativist populism, is, as you point out, is very weak. Partly because those are very highly secularized societies, and it is secular post-Christians that defend European Christianity against Islam, not the Christians themselves. The Christians themselves are not necessarily anti-Muslim. They are they are they are much easier, or they sooner. Uh, are attracted to the parties if if they can attack Brussels for precisely uh, uh, against uh, two liberal two gender uh, gender issues. I mean, it's very clear in the. Let's look at 
And here the different Catholic, uh, Dutch, Holland, and Finland will be different, the dynamic. And I don't know enough of the dynamic in Finland, but look at Holland. At Holland, uh, basically, the party at first was a purely liberal anti-religious party. It had nothing religious in it. It was for the defense of, of precisely of freedoms. It was a liberal party for individual freedoms against conservative Islam and, if necessary, against conservative Christianity. So it was only later that basically uh, um, this kind of new populism against elites, uh, the possibility of gaining votes, of expanding the party, because the base for this party is very small. So it is electoral politics that leads to these fusions. I mean, if you look at the alternative in at the beginning, uh, when they came to power, or that was the, the first elections 2017, when they got uh, 3 million votes, uh, it's basically, you could argue, of the 3 million votes, one-third were ex-leftist votes from East Germany that used to vote the Communist Party and now voted precisely the anti-immigrant nativist party. One-third were conservative uh, uh, Catholics and less Protestant, but also conservative Catholics, especially in Bayern. And one third were simply uh, uh, new people that had not been, had not voted. They were not affiliated. So, um, so here you have, these parties have to grow at the expense of other parties or by precisely attracting people that were not affiliated before and that, that finally find a representation, some symbolic representation that they couldn't find through the normal parties. But I think, as you point out, in the, I mean, the attempt to develop a conservative Christian alliance, the Russian Orthodox Church has been working at it since 2004. I remember the first speech I heard from Metropolitan Ilarion in Gniezno, in, in 2005, where he tried to develop an alliance with, with, with Catholics, conservative Catholics against liberalism, against Protestantism, against the European Union. But certainly under Wojtyla, you could not have this alliance if it was against human rights, against, against, against Brussels, which was important, Europe, the European project for, for the Vatican. And with this pope, certainly you cannot have, uh, on the base of gender, conservative issues, an alliance because other issues are more important for this pope. But you have precisely the conservative Catholics against the pope are the ones that will link to Russian Orthodox and to these nativist parties, precisely. So it is at the moment in which uh, some of these conservative uh, Christians feel totally alienated from their own churches, that they are open then to new alliances, nativist alliances. Uh, and this will change differently in different uh, religious cultures. So the, the relation of church and state and the relation of... of um, uh, uh, after all, basically, those national churches are run by parliament today, right? So before it was Cuyus Regium and the monarch, but now it's parliament that basically, to a certain extent, controls those churches. So uh, if you become anti-church, you become anti-parliament, you become anti-state, anti and you look for alternatives. Thank you. Um, uh, any further questions? 
And before uh, the audience thinks, I will get back to my questions. Um, you, you have uh, an interesting survey um, in, 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 your, uh, in your chapter, a survey of lay Catholic elites from 103 different uh, countries. And after the Third World Congress for lay apostolate in Rome, and an interesting trend there that I noticed was that the the elitists, the kind of the globalists, were the, were the elites, but the weaker transnational consciousness was among the lower clergy. Right. So in a way, there was that interesting dichotomy between the hierarchies. I noticed similar things along my own research about the Orthodox Christianity in Ukraine, Serbia, and Georgia, and the the hierarchical differences. With regards to issues, I don't know, again, with gender, with regards to um, the role of, uh, you know, a man in society and et cetera, the conservative kind of the, the issues was very, very uh, prominent. I'm wondering how this difference maybe is translated into acceptance of different kinds of nationalism. Is there a, a, a reasonable connection a, a kind of uh, between this, that uh, the, the elite conflict and the grassroots different approach uh, towards, uh, again, the globalist versus uh, relatively hesitant towards globalist consciousness or transnational consciousness, as, as, as you say. Well, but this was a unique moment. This was right after Vatican II. Uh, this was the moment when, for the first time, um, global Catholic elites became aware of their global identity but not through capitalism and not through globalism. So they were, if it was pro-globalization before we were aware of economic globalization. Mm -hmm. So they were for open borders. They were for basically the right to immigration, but not necessarily for, they were very much, you say, I, and the left, anti-capitalist, probably for social justice and, and, and for the minorities, for the preferential option for the poor. So there was a unique kind of, of globalism of the left that was not linked to capitalism. So this, this is very important to maintain this. Uh, this probably today is not anymore the case. This you have, you still have, of course, uh, among, among probably uh, the more missionary orders, if you wish, the more missionary orders, nuns, they're the ones who will be the most globalist and that they have less of a, of a nationalist identity. But you have also within Catholicism, certainly uh, uh, the old Catholic working class that was uh, both democratic is the one that moved after Reagan moved to the Republican Party. And the old Catholic bishops that were much more, they're still pro-immigration, but uh, because they put the gender issue as the most important issue. Once you put abortion and same-sex marriage as the crucial issue that determines your political allegiance, then you are going to vote Republican, even if uh, the Republican Party is against everything else that is part of the Catholic social teachings. So again, it has to do Specifically, I would argue today the key issue is gender issues have become the key issues through which then these uh, religious people and, and who basically will, will address those issues. Um, on the other hand, uh, as you know very well, obviously um, Ukrainian Orthodox may be as conservative on gender issues as Russian Orthodox. But they will never enter an alliance with the Russian Orthodox Church on those issues. They rather, and they will not fight against the European Union because they want to enter Europe to be protected from, from Russia. So again, those are the context. 
the, the particular local context is will determine very much what this kind of alliances or what kind of, of, of directions will go. This, uh, uh, now you have, of course, you could argue that the old um, uh, Russian Orthodox authors was very much autarchic. They didn't want to have anything to do with the world. They want to be separate and close. And then you have now these uh, Russian moral entrepreneurs, the Orthodox oligarchs, that are interested not only in, if you wish, expanding Russian nationalism, but also because they themselves are, through their uh, economic uh, uh, interests, are kind of globalist. They also become kind of uh, global missionaries of Russian Orthodoxy. So this, 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 that you have the new oligarchs in Russia that become then uh, involved in the World Council of Families and are the ones that finance many of those projects and so on. So again, this is, this is a, a unique phenomenon that you could not have expected 20 years ago. But now here enters the conflict between the ecumenical patriarch and the Moscow patriarchate. As you know now, many of the positions of the Orthodox churches will be determined by precisely which position they take vis-a-vis -vis in relation to this conflict between Moscow and Constantinople. So again, those are uh, particular aspects that will change uh, from place to place. Okay, very interesting. Um, do we have other questions from the audience? Okay, I will continue then. Um, my um, puzzle with, with the whole uh, so many isms, and I, I noticed you have a question, but I'll, I'll get back to you, Richard. Um, how kind of conceptually, how, 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 what's your take on the fluidity of these categories? Again, neoliberal nationalism and generally neo-nationalism. I mean, how neo is neo-nationalism? Is that really well, a neo? I'm, I was never... I'm sort of a nominalist on these issues. Those are words, you use them when they are helpful, but you know, try to define them in a way that, uh, you know, those are tried attempts to, to understand reality. For me, the ability, the flexibility to accommodate uh, complex, different fluid realities is more important that strict definitions that then eliminate basically uh, uh, because practically no, in reality, you never find this, this pure precision. So when you call neo-nationalism is a way of saying, well, really, we don't know really what it, it looks like nationalism, but obviously something different is new. We are living in a global age in which even these nationalisms are subject to transnational dynamic and structures. So obviously it's not the old nationalism of nation against nation, because most of these nationalisms are not against their national neighbors. The old nationalism, you know, was basically ready to go to war against your nationalist enemy, which is your neighbor. So um, this is not the, 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 the situation. So we are talking about nationalism because if you are against Brussels, to go back to the autonomy of the nation state is a post, uh, if you wish, already post-European dynamic, which is different from the original one, uh, and so on. So you have, um, so I'm, I, I never put too much emphasis on the need to be 
precise with definitions. I mean, uh, my interest is always in understanding the complexity and the diversity of reality for, for comparative historical analysis more than in defining categories, in defining theories, which are well, uh, that can then be, if you wish, scientifically applied. I'm less interested in building scientific theories and I'm more interested in trying to understand the complexity of a world which is changing dramatically and we, our categories have to be uh, basically remade because we don't have categories to, 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 to understand what is happening. And so we use all categories and we put the neo or our post. Post and neos are basically recognitions that something is new and we don't have a name for it yet. And we somehow are, are using the old names, but in a, in, a, in a revised form. Fair point. Thank you very much. We have two questions here. I'll start from Richard. Uh, I, I wanted to, to connect to, to you mentioning before the European Union of the European integration has Catholic roots, but that was secularized Christian democracy in connection to uh, Ferrari's idea that the European Union in today's uh, in the today's shape is more inclined toward Protestantism uh, than, than towards Catholicism. So my question is, do you have the first question would be why do you think that could have happened if you agree with Silvio Ferrari? And then the second thing would be to ask, do you think it has some connection to the, to the political developments in, in, in Europe today? Well, first, I'm not sure. I mean, I have not read uh, uh, this particular work of Ferrari on, on, on the European Union and Protestantism. I, I, I will have to understand what it means. I don't see it, but maybe I, I don't know exactly what, what he means by it. No, I think that it's more, it's not a more Protestant, less Catholic. It's simply uh, this European spirit, the idea of a vision for Europe is gone. So whether it is in the form of a Catholic vision, Catholic not, a Roman Catholic, but Catholic in the sense of transcending nationalisms, uh, or socialist also in transnational solidarity. So there was the notion of either a transnational Catholic solidarity or a transnational socialist solidarity is gone. It became very clear in the financial crisis. And we have not replaced it with anything else. So basically, the European Union now is a club of uh, rich nations. That's what it is. And they would like to not to have new members that create problems for them. And obviously, uh, their solidarity only goes as far as uh, this and affect their pocket. When you have to redistribute, then the problems, the conflicts begin. So, I mean, I think that the problem is a problem of vision. Europe for what? And the discussion of European values and what makes Europe in a globalized world different. Uh, it's a fundamental problem. There is no serious debate about it, because the attempts to have a debate about it uh, linked to the preamble to the Constitution was a disaster for the elites. And so the elites have not tried anymore to open up this conversation as to what does Europe mean? What is Europe? What are European values? Why should we be together? So basically, we are trying to manage what we have without basically uh, losing it. But we don't have really, really also good arguments why we should have it. So obviously Brexit uh, united the rest of the bloc because they realized, well, maybe maybe after all, there is something good in being together. 
uh, as long as we don't have to pay too much for whoever uh, uh, the poor member is. So again, I think that there are transaction, transactional relations. Uh, the European Union will manage this crisis, but it has no vision for the future. And you need some kind of transformative vision, whether it is to put an end to the Westphalian system, to create a Europe from the Urals to the to the to the Atlantic, whatever, some kind of vision. This is gone. This is gone, and and we have difficulty uh, reimagining uh, what is Europe and why. Probably you could say younger generations have a sense of belonging to Europe, and people. I mean, for me, it was very striking the way in which the pandemic. The knee reaction was basically everybody for itself uh, to close the borders without even to end the Schengen system without even any communication with one another unilaterally. If the decision would have been would have been made for let's say public health reasons, it is better that we close borders that we don't let people move from one place to another. But it was not a public health response. It was a basically a native response, each country trying to separate itself from the rest and not to be affected by the other. So later there was some attempt to create uh, a pan-European uh, uh, responses. Uh, the vaccines has been a disaster precisely because there was no, no real clear project of making sure that we get vaccines for all of Europe, that we negotiate, and then the distribution has been a mess. But this is a, is, is a symptom of precisely uh, the way in which also the pandemic that should have actually uh, led us to understand that, yes, we may need to quarantine, we may need to lock down, but it should be all coordinated responses on, on public health issues, not if you wish, uh, automatic nationalist responses. Thanks a lot, Jose. Alexander is next, and then Kasper. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor Casanova. It has been great to, to um, hear your hear you speaking about these issues. Um, I was curious, and perhaps this is a very Eurocentric question, um, probably. Um, uh, you have spoken about the that the, the Christian influence on neo-nationalism and neo-populism. But I'm curious to see, if, to hear your thoughts on if there are sentiments of Christian um, ideas within more liberal, liberal traditions or even cosmopolitan uh, traditions or groups that has been uh, raised uh, as a consequence of this uh, alliance between the Christian group, uh, groups and neo-national group. Uh, so, so if there is a more liberal Christian yeah, view, that I, is I would argue yes that that in general, the tradition of diaconia within Scandinavian countries, the tradition of the uh, welfare state, the tradition of uh, the dedication of this is the pastoral elites within each of the churches, which are dedicated either to social services, to education, to health. Uh, they are usually have been pro-immigrant, they have not been nativists. I mean, in Germany, it was very clear the greatest support of Merkel came from uh, the Christian, uh, let's say, engaged, Christian engagement, whether it is 
the Christian uh, religious religious people, let's say the most religious people, which are really, really most engaged in living their gospel beliefs, are the ones which are most resistant to any form of nativism or to any form of, if you wish, uh, uh, solipsism against solidarity. They are usually, uh, in this respect, liberal Christians, tradition of the social gospel, tradition, you know, from the Pope to religious sisters, from the tradition of the Aconia in your Scandinavian countries, those are people who are resistant to nativism. Now, Kaspar. Thank you, um, Professor Casanova. I have another question, if, if I may, um, regarding the European uh, Union. Um, you sketched the beginning, as we heard in the previous previous question, um, really as a Catholic project. From the last question, I, I got a little bit of confusion. So did you mean uh, the sense that it was a Roman Catholic project infused by a sense of religion, which is something beyond nations? So that would be a first uh, small question. Uh, but from what you said, I took it to be a, a really also a Roman Catholic project. And if that is the case, my question would also be at the same time we have the formation of the European Council and the Convention of Human Rights, which, if I'm correctly informed, was not just a Catholic project, also a Catholic project, but more a Christian conservative project in some way, uh, because the United Kingdom was quite involved, I think, but also American Protestants were pushing. Uh, so so there's, uh, I'm interested to know your opinion, um, how that squares together. And um, the second or third part of the question would be, we really see, I think, in the European Union, a kind of uh, switch from a more economic project to a political project with the Maastricht Treaty in the, in the 90s, where we start to see this idea of the union, really, which comes, I think, from the American Union, this idea of the union, federal union. And um, it seems to me that this kind of switch from a more economic, even though this political imaginary was there, from a more economic to a political project uh, and uh, produced also maybe a little bit of the conflicts that, that we now see uh, in terms of, if you're right, that the Protestant countries did not uh, support the European Union at the beginning and then may only joined because of economic pressures. So they lacked maybe uh, this buildup of the European spirit or the vision. So um, what I want to, uh, want to ask here is that if you try, what, what we see in the European Union is really, I think, uh, they work with the courts, with the European Court of Justice as a main agent of integration. And then you get the problem if you do it through the courts that you you don't take the people politically with you. So the question here would be, do we just need to be more patient here until uh, it takes just a long, long time until this consciousness can develop? And also if the European Union maybe should give a bit more autonomy to its members uh, in order to uh, allow for that political process and not just a jurisdictional process. Thank you. Well, this is a very, very broad question. Obviously, it was a simplification to argue that I, I, I started the seeds, the seeds of the European Union is a transnational project to overcome the wars of nationalism that they were already established during World War uh, II and it was mainly by French Catholics. French Catholics 
that had not been part of Petén, that had been part of the resistance, so it was the radical Christian Democrats. It was a small party, but the leaders, the leaders, the French leaders of the European or European Union were Christian Democrats. It was a relatively small party within 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 uh, uh, Europe. Uh, and then, of course, the Germans. The Germans, the new Christian Democratic Party, was uh, the party that brought together for the first time Protestants and Catholics. Catholics were a majority now because the, the largest Protestant majority have remained in Eastern Europe. So now the old, um, so the Christian Democratic Party has a lot of Protestants, but it's a predominantly Catholic party. The same goes in Holland. I think that again, the new Christian Democratic Party that brings together Protestants and Catholics. So what I argue is it is uh, within, but the six, the six countries joining the um, the first the Treaty of Rome, namely uh, Benelux, uh, France, Italy, and Germany, all six are uh, basically governed by Christian Democratic parties at the time. Or in France, they don't govern, but they are really, really the leaders of the process. And as I point out at first, no Protestant country was interested. There was an element, even in Northern Ireland today, the resistance against Europe is still based on the old, it was an old Catholic project. When I said Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic, because obviously Catholic Spain and Catholic Portugal were not invited because it was meant for really, really Christian democratic parties, not for Catholic traditionalist parties. It was a democratic component, not the Catholic one that was the important one. But it was a transnational Catholic moment that don't, wanted to avoid the old nationalism. After all, France and Germany had been at war since 1870, the Prussian-French War, and then World War I, World War II. So it was really, really this attempt to get. Then I argue uh, later, however, with the incorporation of uh, the United Kingdom and the Scandinavian countries and then the southern countries, you have now <clears throat> a much greater weight of socialist parties. And it is the transnational socialism. And it is those which are more for a political uh, 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 growth, not only an attempt to create a more a political union, not only an economic. At first, it was an economic market. It was called European Common Market. But it was meant, understood as a, as a means to something beyond to create the European system. Obviously, for, the, uh, for, for somebody like Schumann, it goes back to the European Middle Ages, when Europe was one. Um, Monet, Monet, however, is the, which becomes now the second figure, more important than Schumann. Uh, Monet is a technocrat, and it's purely on economic grounds, technocratic grounds. And so Brussels eventually really, really develops more along the lines of a technocratic management of the new situation. And I think that there has been the fundamental weakness of the European Union was the, uh, the creation of really, really, truly uh, accountable democratic structure. So you have always a division within the European Union between a structure of basically uh, technocratic elites managing the system and some parliamentary representation 
but really, really is not where uh, the real power uh, uh, rests. And this dualism, this uh, has never been fully, fully, fully uh, uh, solved. Uh, so there is not enough. So when the crisis come, the normal way of trying to revive democracies to go back to national democracies, which is where people uh, uh, feel themselves represented more than in in Brussels or Strasbourg. So uh, this is a fundamental, I think, uh, uh, still uh, a crisis in or uh, defect, if you wish, or failure in the very formation of the European Union. And obviously, I'm very much for the uh, uh, the possibility of going beyond it. On the other hand, I understand that the moment the, the more countries you have, the more difficult it becomes to create a political union. And of course, I am still very much uh, given my own uh, sympathies for the Ukrainian cause, very much that Ukraine should join the European Union. But of course, a lot of people in Europe say, no, 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 let's stop the borders here and not let's not bring Ukraine. So here you have a question of uh, what is Europe and what's the purpose of Europe? And so until this question is not really, really seriously asked and, 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 and we don't have an answer or a serious debate about it, then we are not going to be able to develop a union of, of what the purpose of the whole thing is, other than, of course, mutual benefit. And before finishing, uh, Professor Casanova, we have a final question. And I'm, I, I know we, we sociologists are not big fans of uh, futurism, but I'm wondering what is the future of American evangelicals and the Russian Orthodox Church, as you call it, ecumenism of hate in Western Europe? How do you see this uh, future developing? And what's the future in the appeal of Christ to the Christian identity, in a way, in Europe? How how do you see the, the, the perspectives of that appeal to the identity of Christian Europe, of kind of the Christianity as a grand unifier of this of this of these narratives? Well, but the evangelical alliance could not work very well in Western Europe, as we saw the attempt of Bannon to 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 bring the Catholics on it. I mean, some conservative uh, French Catholics would go for it on issues of abortion. And insofar as if for anybody whose abortion is the key issue, if this is the key issue, then obviously, if the if the uh, uh, American evangelicals and the and the Russian Orthodox are forming an alliance on this issue, the Catholic Church should also join it. But obviously, under this papacy, this has not happened. Um, but it will happen in the future, let's say, and the more also because of the global cultural wars beyond Europe. The possibilities of this alliance because of the growth of Pentecostal evangelical Christianity everywhere in Africa, Latin America, Asia, this culture war, so there is a much greater resonance. Russia becomes less relevant in those other areas, but the role of evangelical Christians uh, is, is, is important for the culture wars. So I, I mean, obviously, I really don't have any, uh, obviously, this was also a unique moment of the Trump presidency. Uh, obviously, with the Biden presidency, the possibilities of this alliance are diminished. Um, you could say now you have a Catholic moment of a Catholic president and a Catholic pope, basically with their projects of a global um, environmental alliance for uh, social justice, for for basically for more pro-immigration uh, is basically more in the cards. So you could argue that there are possibilities for liberal Christianity in the Catholic and Protestant versions 
basically uh, forming an alliance with secular, uh, um, um, not neoliberal globalists, but those who argue that for the sake of the environment, immigration, refugees, uh, uh, public health, that we too should have more transnational structures, that we need transnational consensus and decisions and transnational collaboration. So I think that um, uh, the, in this respect, there is right now a moment more open to uh, going back to more uh, kind of uh, global alliances in the direction of solving uh, global challenges, or at least responding to global challenges that require transnational dynamics because no country can alone face issues of immigration or issues of, of, of pandemics or, for that matter, environmental issues. So I think that uh, we are going to, to be back and forth on the other hand, as long as there is a fundamental neoliberal economic structure, financial global capitalism, and the kind of transformation that leaves uh, people behind. I mean, in this respect, mm, the Pope is right. The problem with capital, global capitalism today is not that it exploits labor, but it doesn't need a lot of labor, that it can discard a lot of people. And therefore, those people feel that they are not needed, that they are discarded. And it is this notion that somehow uh, the system doesn't need us anymore that we are basically uh, not relevant for the system, that really uh, creates the resentment of uh, those people that feel left behind. And on, on this note, may we thank you very, very much for your excellent talk. And on behalf of our team here and uh, those who couldn't attend, um, and for those who are interested in our series, um, we will have um, next month also the talk. We have forthcoming on 27th of um, April, our departmental seminar. And so please stay tuned, uh, drop me emails. Unfortunately, we can't applaud you, Professor Casanova, but uh, hopefully see, we'll see, see you. I see, yellow, I see yellow hands there. Yeah, exactly, Thank so exactly. Thank you so much. Thank I you, I enjoyed everybody. the conversation very much.